Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Solo, and it's still encased in carbonite. Gentlemen, what are we going to do? It must be 1983. Let's go to the cinema. Yes, I think that's definitely a, an excellent way uh, to start to look at 1983. And uh, possibly what I said just before we started recording is that um, 1982 was a, a big effort. We had to, you know, it's like, oh, look, look at all the stuff we've got to cram in. Um, and 1984, I can assure everybody, is going to be no different. However, 1983, um, it has good movies in it but then that sort of second string of movies is like i love that movie but i just didn't realize it was out at the same time as that because you know the other thing eclipsed it that doesn't happen as much and also you do have a lot of films coming out in the year which are um missteps or not as well regarded or complete disasters or people having a bad day or whatever it is so it's going to be an interesting i think it Despite the fact that it's a, it's a year that doesn't actually have a lot of releases in it, those releases that exist are interesting. Um, although, they're not going to be interesting enough to keep Justin around for the entire length of the show without a finger pause. Isn't that right, Justin? That's right. <laughs> At some point, oh, we need to take a break. You will get a warning. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's home. Justin, one of the 80s kids. Yeah, <laughs> At home. Hello. At home, due to the magic of podcasting, nobody will notice a thing. Yes, we are the 80s kids. It is 1983, and uh, apparently uh, BMXs are a thing. Um, I don't know why, apart from the fact that BMX Bandit, uh, which was the debut on the screens of Nicole Kidman coming out in 1983, I don't know why I've decided to start there. I don't think I've even ever seen BMX Bandits. I think because BMX bikes were just so big in the 80s. I mean, a lot of people were riding bikes all of a sudden. I think E.T. probably helped. There's quite a bit of cycling in that. Yeah, but the cycling in E.T. definitely had a basket on the front of it. BMXs do not have baskets on them. <laughs> they do have... No, I would um, not nearly from a government with a BMX bike. That is quite true. They do have crossbar cosies, as I recall, and brightly coloured mudguards, but, but not baskets. It no. was the year because I lived on, on, on like a... What was it? Was it was it was a kind of suburban area, and so I was able to cycle around without cars whizzing around all the time. So, so the whole bicycle thing in the early eighties kind of clicks for me. Yeah, I, I, might... I think I think it is a good note to start because obviously you know we you know film film TV podcast, but um, it's weird. I think that the nineteen eighties. Now that I come to look at the BMX Bandits movie, the eighties was very much an era of fads. Oh, there were a lot of fads. Absolutely. You've got kind of roller skating, well, rollerblading. I think that's the 80s, isn't it? Uh, late 80s, possibly. Uh, yeah, fashions were a bit like that as well, you know, coming and going and ludicrous kind of. It was like Steve Davis was the greatest snooker player in the world or something like that. 
I think I think yeah. one of the things about it is that there were actual fads in the 1980s, and what we see, you know, BMX Bandits is actually quite rare. I mean, if you look at the roster of films that came out, there aren't many films in the 1980s that are trying to cash in on a fad. Weirdly, yeah. when we come to the 90s, I've suddenly realised that most fads were killed by the fact that every time a fad, you know, something came into fashion, people descended upon it en masse to make it into a, a you know, let's yeah. make a film, let's make a television programme, let's do this, let's do that. The, there was no Segway Bandits, so, yeah, that, that's not <laughs> quite the same one. <laughs> Um, so yes, yeah, so that's it. I mean the cultural menu. I remember the era of the BMX. Uh, you could be, and the thing about it is, they still make BMX bikes, of course, and people do still ride them. And you see stunt cyclists, but it's all a specialist niche now. But yeah. when you look at a BMX bike, it, it does make my head pop a bit. That at eight years of age, I could be envious of someone owning one of those. I'm like, mm, really? Well, it's, it's still kind of because you still have skate parks. They're hugely popular these days. It's, as before, as you know, it is now. Oh uh, yeah, I can. St- I can. St- weirdly, I can. Kind of open playground un- thing. Yeah, I can understand why skateboarders. And to my mind, I know that there are skateboarding movies, but skating is something people do as part of their personality in another film about something else. For example, at the beginning of the Buffy TV series, Xander skated quite a bit because they were trying to make him into a skater. It didn't pan out in the end, but at the beginning, he had a skateboard. Marty McFly famously skateboarded, but the point of Back to the Future is not, hey, he's a skateboarder. It has some skateboarding sequences in it because it's something Marty does, but it's a character point. It's not a... It's it's only in there so that he can have a hoverboard, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, they obviously weren't intending that straight away but yeah i mean you know we, we, we're getting into that groove so yeah i mean that that's the thing um whereas obviously a film called so d- am i right in saying that nobody here has seen bmx bandits i know i have but i don't i can't remember much about it because i do remember something with nicole Kidman and i do remember the title because it's quite memorable but other than that i can't remember a lot so there we go uh, not so. Movie, but it's <laughs> commenting around, really. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the point is that I've got written on the list here: BMX Bandits starring Nicole Kidman, and I think that's the headline. You know, oh look, this is Nicole Kidman's first film. Yeah, that's that's kind of it. Um, yeah, I mean, as I was saying, there's a lot of films in this year that that kind of, I think, are slightly less than people could have hoped for. We have Christine. Uh, John Carpenter movie, which I don't think is one of his best regarded. Tony Scott did The Hunger. Oh God, we had Jaws 3D. Oh wow, bet that was great. Uh, Krull, uh, Never Say Never Again, Octopussy, Psycho 2, uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Return of the Jedi, Superman 3. I think that that kind of says, you know, these are, ironically... Uh, well, these are the low points of the year. But, having yeah. said that, are they that low? Some of them are actually all right, I suppose. I think um, there's going to be a lot of tension here. Because I think people will find things in stuff, some of that stuff and find merit in it, whereas you could look at it and go, oh, my God, they're hideous. I think it's there's quite a few things. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few eclectic things in here. Uh, I mean, I actually went and saw Kroll in the cinema, uh, I thought it was all right, and you know, uh, had the kind of game afterwards. Uh, I, War Games was a kind of I 
was I saw that on video and I saw it quite a few times. It was quite exciting. It's been much parodied. Uh, well, I was going to come back to War Games because War Games is a different kettle of fish. I mean, we were trying to concentrate r- right at this point on those things which are either missteps in an, in a career so far. Well, I think or what missteps. I mean. On one hand, it should be a good year for a James Bond fan because you've got two movies coming out and Sean Connery is, is returning to the role. On the other hand, the yeah. films you get on Never Say Never Again and Octopussy and Oh My Goodness. Well, Never uh, Say yeah. Never Again is Thunderball, isn't it? But Yeah, it's a remake, yeah, because yeah. the book had two authors, so the other author was able to uh, get that other one made. Um, and I think there's always been kind of a... a, a a sort of rights issue about the character of Blofeld ever since, which is one of the reasons he hasn't reappeared. I think Dr. Evil has also completely killed Blofeld. You just couldn't do him seriously these days. Even if you got Anthony Hopkins to play Blofeld, he just wouldn't work. Anymore. Especially if you got Anthony Hopkins to play Blofeld. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what do we feel about, you know, the uh, the unofficial renegade uh, James Bond film, the Sean Connery? I don't really... It does, it's an old film. I don't really feel it's, it exists in this kind of alternate universe yeah. where Bond is this kind of, um, you know, podgy, toupee-wearing <laughs> guy. He's not, he's not the Bond that I remember. He's not the Bond that I remember, the actor-wise. You know, um, it's, 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 got, uh, it's got Q and all the characters that you kind of remember, but they're totally different, and they they're just wrong somehow. They're just not right. Uh, wasn't it? Was he? Was it? Ron Atkinson was Q, or was Ron Atkinson was some sort of government agent giving him missions? Um, no, it, was a, it was a very geeky kind of uh, Q, who was uh, well, Orge actually, kind of you know that kind of train spotter Q. He was really the guy that played it. It was all it, I don't know, and it was a, a bit. I've just found it unwatchable in places because you know Sean Connery. It, it, it would because it's Sean Connery, it's worse because you're thinking of the earlier Bonds, and there he is now, clearly out of shape and still doing all that kind of Bond stuff, and it's a rehashed plot. It just feels like maybe a cheese dream, you know. You kind of imagine it's just it's just it's not it's just not right somehow. It just kind of despoils. I, okay. I prefer to forget about it. Here's a quandary for you, Justin. I've got yeah. two DVDs in my hand. One is Never Say Never Again, and the other is Die Another Day. Which one would you rather watch? <laughs> um, so what is that? Hang on, you've got to remember, which one is Die Another Day? Well, there That's we go. That door. kind of answers the question, doesn't it? <laughs> Die Another Day is the one with the invisible Bond car, the ice castle, the I'm going to use uh, part of an exploded satellite as a boogie board while I'm parasading across a melting glacier yeah, that one, you know. That one, I asked you, that's the only one I haven't seen. <laughs> <Sorry to that>. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. You would watch that there. just to be able to wince at the... However, uh, it would have to be go some to kind of, you know... Oh, it's go some. Of... Trust me, it goes some. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I'm trying basically... It... Turn off the DVD and go and do something else, I think. That's my third option. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Roger Moorland, uh, another James Bond that perhaps was beginning to show his age, we have Octopussy, yeah, which is like a title that flew over my head as a kid, but as an adult, I think it's an utterly ridiculous title for anything, yeah. let alone a James Bond film. I think Lake um, Moore is, you know, he really is suffering. Was that his no, Was that his last one, or is he still... No, no, no. A View to a Kill is his last one. View to oh, a okay. Kill. So, but, you know, he's showing signs of, 
you know, we we like him. I like I liked. I'm a big fan of Roger Moore in, uh, as uh, as Bond, but the early stuff when he's kind of sexy and glamorous and with a twinkle in his eye, when he becomes a bit creepy and old and clearly, you know, it, then it's, it's it's a bit like uncomfortable viewing, and he's kind of moving into that stage Just for me. But that's the thing. I think that a lot of people do resent the fact that James Bond became a bit of a joke. And actually, I think this is something that happens on a cycle, because you had Sean Connery terribly serious, Roger Moore came in, brought a bit more dash to it, and then became a joke. So they, as a reaction to that, Timothy Dalton, who was very, very serious. Um, And then they were like, oh, it's too... Yeah, then it was like, oh, it's too serious. Oh, let's bring some dashing back into it. Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan gets old. Oh, it's become a bit of a joke. Daniel Craig. Do you, I, think, I, mean, no, I think. I think the plane. I think you can only play Bond for a certain number of films before it it, it stretches the bounds a bit. Yeah, if you're you know. Dalton too. If you're uh, Lazenby, one. <laughs> well, yeah, no, they should have been. They definitely should have had more. You know, I think you can play three or four films, probably five, probably the maximum. I think for Bond, and because that, that's like. That's 15 years or so playing that role. I think that's probably about as much stretch. Any more than that, it becomes a bit ridiculous. And that's why I think, you know, more suffer. And I do like Roger Moore. I do like, but I think he was just too old for the parts by those later ones. Uh, The plot of Octopussy was like a few, two short stories kind of smooshed into one, as I recall. It's not great to begin with. Yes, it's not a great. It's not. No, it's not a good film. I mean, the opening was quite striking, where you have the clown crashes into someone's front room and falls over a dead knife in his back. <laughs> that, that was a fairly striking opening, I suppose. Um, um, I but, think yeah. that many people's complaints on that, apart from the title, is that it's it's pretty incoherent. It's not. Um, you like uh, really? I can't remember much about other those those little set pieces and the fact that you know it was in India. Yeah, part of it. And that's all I can remember. I can't really remember anything, anything to do with the plot or anything. Once again, you know, holding up two DVDs, in one hand you got Octopussy, in the other one you got Quantum of Solace. Which one's the, the most non-understandable? <laughs> Cause well, actually, I, 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 yeah, I'll probably go Quantum of Solace, actually. actually. I'm probably... What, is more non-understandable than Octopussy? Oh, more non-understandable. <laughs> Yeah, Octopussy is some strange plot regarding Fabergé eggs, a renegade, a Russian general, and I think a whole load of heroin as well is thrown in, as I recall. It's it's a bit all over the show. Yeah, you take the Fabergé eggs, I throw in the the heroin. No extra charge. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I... I, Yeah, I remember... I didn't go and see Quantum Solace at the cinema. Um, And then when I eventually did catch it, it was like... you know, I got so far, and I was like, "Do you know what? I really don't understand what's going on anymore. I don't <laughs> follow it at all." I think that is a result of the writer strike more than anything else. Yeah. So uh, there we go. Hmm. Anyway, so I think I think we both say Bond. Yeah. Uh, try again, 007. Um, um, to, on on while we're on this kind of uh, bum note thing, uh, the the former red-headed stepchild of the Star Wars franchise, Return of the Jedi. <laughs> oh, Ewoks come back, all is forgiven. Exactly. Um, uh, well, I, 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 I didn't mind the Ewoks. I wasn't a big Ewok kid. My cousin was huge into Ewoks. Uh, but I didn't mind them so much at the time. Uh, and so I never really had the stigma about them particularly. 
but uh, even so, I was aware the third film just somehow, I, I don't know what it was, just wasn't quite as good as the others. I think it's perhaps just the... Oh, sorry. Well, the it's, a it's a typical thing to follow, isn't it? Empire Strikes Back. That was, I mean, such a, you know... It just a, feels like they were playing it quite safe in the third film after taking so many really brave risks with the second. And it's not like Lucas got his fingers burnt with the fact that Empire Strikes Back was so dark. So it, it seems strange that, you know, he for the third film he goes for, you know, it's, it's the most episodic. I mean, there's a Jabba the Hutt plot, and then there's the whole film basically starts up again 40 minutes in, and we have the second Death Star plot line. Um, which, is, which is a really strange way to stretch your film. And it, it, it's odd that it, it's so kind of, you know, there's no, no heroes die as a result of beating the Empire. There's no, there's no sacrifice. And Harrison Ford wanted Solo to get bumped off. He wanted to have a hero's death. Uh, and Lucas was like, no, we can't do that. We can't even kill off Lando, destroying the uh, Death Star. Uh, and Luke facing off against Vader. Luke is never really tempted, is he? He's, he's somewhat goaded, but basically he, he was never in any serious danger of falling. It's not even really explained ex- precisely why becoming angry would be such a bad thing. I mean, it says, oh, we'll just dark down the dark path. But it, it's never explained about how the Emperor is going to use that to turn Luke into his servant. I mean, provoking him to the point where Luke tries to kill him, I can see how he could do that. But how is that useful for flipping him over? You know, how can you go kill your father and take your place at my side? Well, of course he's, he's not going to do that. You might kill his dad because he's a bit lied with him about a few things. But why is he going to kneel before you as a result of doing that? Anyway. Yes. It, it's, yeah. I, I think I remember I was caught up in the merchandise at this time. And I think I, as a kid, was just basically excited to go and see it. Excited to, you know, all the new ships and all that kind of stuff. And it, that probably was more important to me than following the plot, which I would like to see again and again at Christmas and stuff, and, and yeah, you know, it was definitely disappointing compared to the, the first two. How do you feel about the death of Darth Vader? Such an iconic kind of figure from the 70s. Well, um, so forgetting about the prequels, which kind of ruined I mean, I think, you know, I think I was quite, I quite liked Darth Vader, um, and I was, uh, yeah, I, uh, that, that's, that I... I was quite. I thought that was quite dramatic and quite powerful because I, I kind of felt for that guy because just because he was, you know, this well, figure a, that we would see in all the films and there was something there. But um, what pops into my head is that that was the first time in my entire life that I had ever looked at something and go, that's not the same guy. It was in there two minutes ago. That was the first no. I just done outside of the film. In it was the first meta thought. I can remember having about a movie when they take the helmet off, and I was like, that's not who was inside that costume a minute ago. No. At eight. Yeah. So, obviously, that wasn't yeah. well handled. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think, because, you know, he's just like an old, wounded old man inside. And I suppose that's, yeah. that, that's a compelling thing about Darth Vader. But you are right, you take the mask off, and it's hard to picture him moving and talking uh, and thinking the way we know Darth Vader does. Yes. But, uh, Obviously, tragedy of the hero. I feel, a bit like, I feel a bit like we're on a journey at the moment into movie hell, because obviously, the, the, you know, you talk about Return of the Jedi, uh, however briefly, and then Superman three catches your eye, and you know, where well, Richard yeah. Pryor has more lines than than uh, Christopher Reeve does. 
Um, yeah, I can see how yeah. a lot of people like Superman 3. But I, it was such a departure. I mean, it's always had col- comedy elements, Superman. What, uh, the, the Christopher Reeves uh, uh, years. But this is the one where they just went out and out like, let's just do funny. I mean, you know, they... And, and so there's much more, you know... You've got As I understand it, uh, Richard Donner was sacked halfway through filming Superman 2. Right. And the director that came in to take over him put a lot more comedy flair into the Superman 2. So all the comedy bits of Superman 2 are the new director, all the serious bits are Donner. And so basically, you know, the, the comedy guy prevails for Superman 3. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's... They, it does, however... It, for its fault, so I would say, because some of it is played broadly humorous, and it does, however, have some very good sequences in it. You know, I think the idea of Superman being corrupted and turning evil is great. Yes, the sequence where Robert Vaughn's on-screen sister is is snared by the machine, and she's screaming, awful yes, screaming, as she's turned into a robot. It's absolutely terrifying as a kid. She's literally being murdered as an individual and turned into an automaton. I think um, there is. I think there is though um, a thing there where it's like the re- one of the reasons why that's quite so disturbing. Um, if you're a kid and not just, I think if you were older, you'd be like, "Well, that's a bit of a mess, isn't it?" Because that's not what this film is. That bit there is. Yeah. Whereas a kid, you're like, "Whoa, where did that come from? That was a bit of a left exactly. surprise." Yes, it's fairly light. Yeah, Magic, it's place, fairly it. rigid robot with wild hair. So. She's a little absurd and impractical. I think no, what it is, if you're looking at it as a story, that's like out of a different movie. That happens. At, I mean, don't mean that anything about the effect or anything. I mean, the actual incident is like out of place in the movie because it yes. doesn't. There's nothing that builds up to it. Nothing well, that they, leads away from it. It just happens randomly. Robert Vaughan, millionaire, kind of takes on which a prior computer genius and starts abusing his genius for his own ends. Builds a supercomputer. Supercomputer decides to try and take over the world very abruptly. There's a showdown. Uh, essentially, the plot. I mean, the big thing in the middle is also um, Superman fighting himself as Clark Kent. In, in, That's in the, the most midst. interesting thing about it. I think you know the, the, the rest of it is a bit hokey. The, the, the main plot line, it feels a bit kind of like a TV thing. I don't know. It just doesn't feel quite right. Although, but that, however, is, is a is very good. Just that. When you've got Superman, about. who like, yeah, he's yeah. G- going around. Was he, does he straighten the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Rips open an old tanker and doesn't help. Yeah. He gets drunk in a bar. And, he, and, he <laughs> and then he's got an existing costume, which is fantastic. You know, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of, he just, and he's, he's got a stubble and he's got yes. greasy hair, and it's fantastic. It's really good. Although, and I, I, I really wanted to see that film. You know, what happens yeah, makes that the thing of this city plot. Interesting, interestingly, from Ian's description of that movie, what I see coming together is that there's a lot of Superman in that movie, a lot of things that are in Superman, e.g. a criminal having a plan which requires you to get round there being a Superman, and Superman having a, a weird time because of some plot element, e.g. kryptonite, that red kryptonite in this case that causes weird yeah. things to happen these are all very superman-y and yet it's renowned as not being a very superman movie it's interesting I mean, it's that, that Clark, Kent triumphs, have... Clark Kent triumphs over the evil superman by basically strangling him to death <laughs> you wouldn't get that in a film these days 
Oh, except in Man of Steel. Uh, I, think where, just, uh, I think it's just the fact that I think it's taken really, uh, Richard Pryor gets so much time and it takes it yes. away from it. I think all those yes. elements could have worked perfectly. I, I, I don't mind Superman 3 because, say, hey, a lot of it I really, really like. Um, but I, I think, think it doesn't think... quite hold together because of that. It, also, they shunt Lois Lane out the movie at the very start, and she comes back in at the end. I think that was a bit of a dumb thing to do, because she was the Lois Lane was part of the ensemble, so it seems a bit churnish to give Clark a new love interest for the duration of the movie. And of course, all the Richard Pryor stuff does make Superman a somewhat reactive character. But I suppose Superman is a reactive character, really, isn't he? Yeah, yeah I suppose he is. Yeah, he is. So, um, but I, I don't think it's all. I don't deserves as much if, if it's a lot of criticism. I think that's unfair. I think it has a lot well, of positives. You've got Superman 4 now to be a whipping boy, so Superman, well, Superman 3. Superman 4 is that pretty much that. that, that it, it, compared to that, Superman 3 is like a forbidden work genius. And then after <laughs> Superman 4, you have Superman Returns. So, you know, it doesn't get any well, better. So, Superman 4 gets Supergirl. Uh, but <laughs> all of those, it's not too bad, really. It's not too bad. Um, so, yeah, uh, to move on. I think it was following up from the first two was very strong. To move on, if I was going to put a nadir on this journey into movie, at the very lowest point, we have in this year Psycho 2 and Jaws 3D. Has anyone seen wow. either of these? Um, I've seen Jaws. Yes. Um, Jaws 3D, yes, I've seen it. Not in 3D, though. Um, there was a bit of a 3D thing in the early 80s with the coloured glasses and it, Jaws. The 3D Max. Jaws have provided it's a pretty probably. ludicrous film. Yeah. He is pretty ludicrous. This is the one, isn't this, hang on, I might be getting this muddle up now. Is this the one, is this the one with the, the revenge, or was that number four? Because I, they kind no, of blur it. The the one one this movie. See. That's a different one. Yeah. Um, I do this remember the, it. it was a lot this, of passing around. It's a great you know, family in the, in the other films, and it's about a kind of a sea world where there's a, a shark thing going on. That's it, that's it. Yeah, I think it's quite forgettable, though. I seem to remember, you know, there was lots of things being waved at the camera. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that's about it, really. I mean, it, it, I, as to, I can vaguely aware of this sea world kind of place, and that's about it. Add shark in it. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is, this is yeah. essentially the big problem with the Jaws franchise is that it's a monster that only lives in water. Consequently, it's, it's very easy to get away from Jaws. It's only like you happen to be very unfortunately in a big pool. Yeah. Him also Unless you have a shot, I know. Yes. Um, well, yeah, so. what, what you're saying here is that Jaws is a, a very bad recurring villain. Jaws yes. can be yeah. in Jaws because that's like, well, you know, because, I mean, you know, you've got all the elements there, obviously, from the novel. We can't close the beaches because there's summer holidaymakers and our town will die if where people aren't allowed to enjoy themselves at the beach and blah, 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 blah. As soon as you move that beyond the one movie, it's like, now you're just being stupid. As soon as Roy Schneider has to kill his second giant shark, you know? Oh, dear. sharks. So meanwhile, I take it nobody has seen Psycho 2. Um, I have. I've seen Psycho uh, but I can't, I'll, I'll probably get those two muddled up, so I, I know they weren't very good. <laughs> I mean, I might have seen Why bother really making a sequel to something that's. Oh, that's right. I remember it now. I remember Psycho 2 is the one where he gets, he's been released from his institution and he's trying to rebuild his life back at the Bates Motel. I don't know why they'd send him there. And I think it's, it's yeah. the relatives of one of his victims tries to drive him mad again. 
Right. Uh, I, I, th- I think so. It's kind of inverted. It's kind of like the guy is being picked on and framed for what's going on. And of course, the, uh, as a result of all the goings on, he has of course gone mad again. But now no one is aware of it because I just think it's that poor guy who had a bad mother who drove him mad and stabbed a few yeah. people in his hotel. And the whole town is like, give the guy a break. What's up with him? So uh, they're completely aware that he's now completely back crazy and turning people uh, into taxidermy. <laughs> because uh, by yeah, the end okay. of it, let's, let's, I, the less said about that, the better. I think. Yeah, I'm, like, how can you make a I sequel to Psycho? Sorry, a film that needed to be made, and you know, we can forget. I think most people have probably forgotten it's about one it. It's after the fact, isn't it? You know, it, it's a, a bizarre one. They did want to make a Psycho three as well. Yes, as, as we claw our way out of this uh, pit, because now we'll go on the way up. We'll, we'll hit the bottom. Now we're we're clawing our way out. Um, and a good place to start at the bottom, uh, because it kind of, there's a chain of three movies, and I kind of saw them in the list and didn't put it together, didn't put it together, and while we've been sitting there, I've suddenly gone, oh, wow, I didn't realise that happened this year. We have Christine, Cujo, and The Dead Zone, all of which are oh, yes. uh, based on uh, properties by Stephen King, the worst of which yeah. is probably Christine. Uh, yeah, not a golden moment in John... I think this was a problem where... Seen Christine? Has everyone seen Christine? Yes. Oh, yeah. Christine? Yeah. Well, I saw it as a teenager, so I was suitably impressed by, by the killer car aspect of it all at the time. Who's seen. Have you read the book? Who's read the book? No. Right. You've told me, no, you told me of that. The book is pretty incoherent, to be honest, because uh, Stephen King got to a point, I think. It's weird, he has kind of had a crisis, because The Shining is fairly full together. Carrie is. It's all together, Pet cemetery. yeah, we know what's happening. And somewhere yeah. around Christine, he got to this thing where he goes, oh, it's a ghost, no, an evil god, no, it's um, just some one of those things that happens. It, he, he stopped being able to say, this is what's happening. And Christine, the mm-hmm. book, has that very much. John Carpenter had a really clear idea about the Christine movie he wanted to make. Uh, much the same way, I think, that Stanley Kubrick had a very clear idea about The Shining he wanted to make, and, um, you know, Brian De Palma had a very clear idea about The Carry he wanted to make. But John Carpenter's idea of what Christine was, not necessarily the best thing. I mean, I'm not sure it's the best property to make a movie out of in the first place, and I don't think John Carpenter really does the job. Uh, that's just my, my opinion, nobody else seems to have strong feelings either way. So, maybe uh, No, as I recall, it's kind of like sports jock gets injured, gets a car to get over it, Ca- uh, car is evil, he, the car is also a killer, he kind of becomes in cahoots with the car by the end, uh, and it all resolves with the car being crushed uh, uh, because it, the car can repair itself. Uh, or is the car destroyed? Mm. Um, so, yeah... Unlike every other horror franchise, yes. I, I watched. I watched it again. <laughs> I, I, I watched it again uh, uh, some years after my teen years, and I was just struck by kind of like there's a lot of people being backed against the wall, going ah as the headlights get closer <laughs> and closer. I think at the end of the day, a car's quite easy to get to avoid once you get off road. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's it's a bit of Jaws factor. It's a bit like the isn't it? Like in that respect, it's. it's uh, I remember. I'm. I, I, I've, I've not seen it since. I saw it in the eighties. So that, I'm exactly, that's what I, I can remember, just people being crushed by bumpers and, and like metal unfolding and repairing itself. And that's about it. I can't remember anything about it. But, they, they, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, get, just go in a room, you know, shut the door. Go in a building. Um, to get to you. 
in between on this is this climb out of hell we have uh Cujo, um which is I'm trapped in a car and there's an evil dog outside the car window. Um it's yeah. it's it's a fairly weighty book, even though it's not it's one of Stephen King's shortest books, but as it's a book that is basically about a woman trapped in a car with a dog outside it, the fact that it's quite long is is something to behold. Um Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, it, it was all right. As a you know, the movie's not you know, it's an alright adaptation of a book that's quite a hard work, if we're gonna be honest. Anyone seen that part of me? No. No. Uh, it's a good thing. Again, again, it's like it's not that I, I remember the dog. I remember the you know, and I don't, I don't remember it having a great effect on me. It just didn't it kind of washed over me. I have seen it. It's a woman trapped in a car with a dog outside it. Um, I like the name Cujo. Very evocative. Uh, it's weird. It's like the name is better than everything that happens in the movie. So yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, so yeah. I mean, the thing is, what what we have to remember is that this follows The Shining. Um, as a you know the shi- and this is obviously why there's all these Stephen King because The Shining is huge and they're oh let's make Stephen King well, things and Carrie and, was big yeah. wasn't that I mean Carrie Carrie was his yes, breakthrough as well Carrie yes so you've got a couple of really big adaptations and then these two rather underwhelming movies and The Dead Zone which is not underwhelming but is not I think what people who want to see a Stephen King movie are expecting. The only thing that lingers, well, a lot of things linger in my mind about that film, but the one emotion I have is that, like, the Doctor is the son of a Jewish SKP or something like that, and he thought his mother had died in the Holocaust, but the but uh, Christopher Walken's character has a dream, and so he's able to ring up and find his mother in, in, a, in a nursing home, and he doesn't introduce himself and say, I'm your son, he just puts down the phone and says, word, it was not meant to be... Uh, and I just found it's really heartbreaking. And that's the thing that really stuck well, with me. Yeah, The Dead Zone, which again is part of the cadre of Stephen King novels before. And he, you know, the further you go through Stephen King's career, the more woolly it gets. And The Dead Zone is very, no, he's psychic. He's got the magic hand. Yeah. Uh, but the whole point about it is that's a curse. It's not a blessing. And yeah, and yeah so this is just another aspect in which it is a curse and not a blessing. Uh, what's very interesting and will come up later on as we move into the 2000s is of course that uh you know 20 years later anti michael hall revived his his career by being johnny smith whereas i mean christopher walken has a problem uh, or or an advantage uh, depending on how you look at it that he is christopher walken um whereas yes. when they redid you know as a tv movie the pilot of the dead zone series the older you know mid 30s anthony michael hall is exactly what Johnny Smith should be. Fairly anonymous. And then he suddenly yes. gets this thing. And that's what made that series work so well and be so massively powerful. And, and you know, it, it went to five seasons. And it was, you know, it, it was, yeah, a, a crazy thing. But, yeah, I, I have a lot of affection for the Dead Zone movie, which is why it's a good place to move on. I think yes. it is one of those things where people have affection for it. Rather than Gentlemen, the vessels are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> it has an element of quality to it, I think. I think that's helped by Christopher Walken's performance, and you're moving something a bit more now credible, I think. Yeah, and, and, and I do think that Martin Sheen is better as the, the crazy president than the young Indiana Bartlett. television series. 
Yeah, it doesn't doesn't really work. Uh, but I have to say, and and unfortunately, Martin Sheen is gets an hour and a half, whereas the young Indiana Jones gets series of being the series villain. You're like, no, it's not working. Take him away. So yeah, um, yeah. In that arena of things that people have affection for, we do have Kroll. Yeah. Yes. I um, I remember watching this a lot when I was young. Yes. Um, as a lot of those fantasy films, it was on our video loop. So, yes, I knew it at all. However, revisiting it recently, um, uh, I, I have been a little bit like, oh, OK, this isn't quite as amazing as I remember it. But what's really interesting about it is that it's come at a point where people... This is a... Krull is a cash-in on the fact that people seem to be going to fantasy movies. Um yeah. And it's just, yeah. And they throw it sci fi as well. It's going to go, well, you like Star Wars as well, so, you know, yeah. it's science fiction fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, I mean, I watched, I couldn't watch all of it, not because I didn't want to watch it all of it, I just didn't have time. The one thing I noticed um, about it is that um, the score dominates the movie. There's yes. a movie happening. But oh my God, is there a score happening? Oh wow, that oh. score really happens. Yeah. Also, there's quite a few. Uh, I seem to recall because I was like Robbie Coltrane's in the movie, which I didn't didn't, oh, didn't yeah, realize until right. I watched it again. Like and you have Liam Nielsen in it as well. Don't Liam Nielsen. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's like, oh really? Um, I mean, also it's quite brutal. There's a, there's quite a big body count on the good guy side. Oh, yeah, the moment you're introduced to all this cast of characters who's going to come along with you, you know, probably they're going to, something bad is going to happen to them. Also, yeah, also, um, I do think that one of the things that it does, the reason why it's probably got a little bit of notoriety is because what you suddenly realise, and this is why, I, I mean, a lot of, I've seen a lot of discussions uh, recently, which is odd, because they're not listening to this podcast, I don't think. And if you are, why not write to us? But a lot of people have started saying, oh, you know, some people have called this uh, sort of mid, early to mid-1980s the unknown golden age of sword and sorcery cinema. That, you know, people were like kind of always watching the next sword and sorcery movie with like, oh, but when they get it right, it'll be mint. Not realising suddenly it was going to disappear with that as a genre. Yeah. Um, but I think there is also this thing of, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's the correct designation. What I think is right is, it hasn't had its golden age yet. We haven't got to the point at which sword and sorcery has re- really comes into its own. And the reason is that writers of cinema, certainly, I don't, I don't read a lot of this kind of sword and sorcery fantasy, but writers in cinema really don't know how to cope with all the problems of alternative it's world. The fantasy. whole world building issue, I think, is, is a yes, big thing. Huge yeah. problem. Um, because, you know, it, this film begins with, you know, a guy on a horse and then someone gets married and, you yeah. know, it's all political and there's some guys in a spaceship. And you're like, really? This is the most successful fantasy franchise. Things like Conan, he's a guy in a village, someone killed his parents, go. Do you yeah. know what I mean? That's that's it. You, you could just say. Whereas when you start, but for some reason, they keep coming back to things like, oh, well, we need to... And this is obviously something that's wrong later on with The Phantom Menace. Oh, we have to set up this faction and that faction. and In the first five minutes, you have to know everything about the politics. All you want 
All you want in a film like Kroll, I mean, you know, you keep seeing this image of the, the glade, they call it, the starfish with the spikes, with the blades on it. You know, in my mind as a child, I'm thinking, oh, I've got throwing this thing around. I watched the film, I was like, you know, use it till the end. Yeah, I think, I think to be and fair. You, and that's what you want from a film. You just want this guy immediately going with this cool weapon. You know, you want Star Wars. You yeah. want them killing people and zooming around. I think And there's all fair. this build-up oh yeah i think to be fair the whole build-up thing of all that kind of stuff they do that quite i mean you know that's got venerable tradition in cinema history of you know especially in monster movies where oh it's a monster movie but you won't see the monster till the last five minutes and it's just a sort of variation on that theme yeah no it totally annoys people it particularly as as time goes on and special effects get better if that's the thing get to the point and I think it was just a yeah. bit of a throwback. You know, that's all it was. It was like, oh, well... Well, we'll... you know, it's it's the ultimate fantasy plot. It's princess in evil dude's castle, Prince Go Rescue. I have to this point. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, right, well, we, we, we'll, uh, we'll let you go and do that. Um, and for us, time will pass. But for you in podcast land, nothing will happen. Watch. Uh, so, yeah, so Justin's back, and you didn't notice any time pass at home, did you? No, not of course. So, yes, we were just uh, on the topic of discussing Kroll, and it was a year... I mean, Kroll was, was, I think, a really big disappointment to many people from that perspective, um, as, I suppose, was um, the film adaptation of, of Something Wicked This Way Comes, uh, which I have seen. Um, again, a very forgettable movie. Anyone else? I'm not sure I've seen it. Now. I'm not sure I've seen it. I can remember bits of it, and I remember it being a bit creepy with this guy in it, but I can't honestly remember anything about it. Perhaps it is just a forgettable film, and I've seen it and forgotten it. Yeah, it's, the thing is, it's something wicked this way comes, is a big Ray Bradbury property, and they made a big thing about it, and Ray Bradbury has a lot of fans, and then it did yeah. nothing, and it's not. it's neither here nor there. And, and yeah, I basically remember the title more than anything, because obviously it's quite distinctive that. Sure. Um, so yeah, we've we've got that. We say, I mean, because there are quite a lot of squibs in this year. Uh, I, we were discussing Twilight Zone, the movie. Um, oh, that again yes. didn't do anything. It's not, you know, it's it's just whatever. Um, in this year, there was. I mean, you know, we've we, everything we've discussed. I think more or less is is was in some way a disappointment, or. Yep underrated um i think one of the most underrated movies to this day um probably because of its content and subject matter uh, was um a videodrome have you seen videodrome justin i saw it recently actually it was one of the things i was when i got onto netflix i was going through all the stuff i had i'd missed over the years so yeah i was uh yeah i was quite intrigued by that actually i mean it's 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 just the whole David Cronenberg theory, really, isn't it? Well, the, the thing is that the Dead Zone was also directed by David Cronenberg, and it's interesting that in this year he produced the seminal David Cronenberg work, which is Videodrome, and the yeah. Dead Zone, which is really nothing like anything he did before or since. It's very sort of, yeah. despite the presence of Christopher Walken, it's very much a movie. It's just. Whereas nothing else that David Cronenberg has made could really be described as just a movie. There's always a little something extra going on. And there really isn't in The Dead Zone. Um, but in Videodrome, oh, wow. I mean, Videodrome... Well, in Videodrome, actually, it's quite interesting to see it in the context of now because it was touching on some points that were kind of relevant. 
well, actually. Yeah. But I mean, it's, about, like, it's about kind of virtual reality, but no, it's more about kind of that reality TV kind of thing. Yeah, video drinks is that reaction to the advent of home video. Yeah. Um, which is obviously, I mean, Jaws 3D, uh, which we discussed earlier, is a, a reaction to that's what, I mean, you know, 3D comes out when yeah. the film uh, industry feels that it's under pressure from some other part. They feel their business is going to get taken away. And in the early 80s, they felt it was going to get taken away by VHS and Betamax. And now they feel it's going to be taken away by evil pirates. And so we get gimmicks to get people to go to the cinema. Yeah. Which ultimately, I think, end up driving people away from the cinema. Um, ultimately. Because um, the other 3D property that nobody's seen, that I've seen several times, it's a television classic. Um, it probably was big enough on video. Uh, it's also on Netflix. Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. This one I know nothing about. I've not seen this, and I feel I'm missing out something here, so I need... I think I might have seen it. Again, I don't know, some of my recollections of these films are hazy. Well, I'll describe A Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone to you, and maybe at some point you'll go, oh, that film! Because never was a film, I think, more badly titled. There was a lot of this going on in the 80s. You have a lot of films which have these kind of quasi-pulp titles... And then they're not at all pulpy, except for Indiana Jones. And this, in a way, this was more a sort of mashup of Mad Max, Blade Runner and Star Wars. Oh, I have seen this. You know this one then, Ian. Yes, you've seen it on television. You didn't know what it was called, didn't didn't you? This is what I'm looking it up now and I'm wondering how I... Was there a tank in it? I tried found it. Basically, the plot is, or the plot such as it is, is that a uh, spaceship which, of, of rich people, including three society debutants, crashes on a planet in the Forbidden Zone uh, uh, that is ruled over by a cyborg warlord called Overdog, portrayed by Michael Ironside. Now, that's enough to sell the movie by itself. Michael Ironside plays a cyborg called Overdog who rules over an entire planet, you know, in the Star Wars tradition of entire planets with one environment, an entire planet that is like Mad Max 2, yeah? Uh, Yeah. Into this comes, um, I think his name is Wolf. He is the space hunter, anyway. And he's like more like a sort of noirish detective, Decker, Blade Runner type character. He's got a spaceship that doesn't work, you think that he's got a glamorous assistant and you're wondering, how has this weird loser guy got this glamorous assistant? But his, um, his ship gets shot down on the way into the, onto the, into the Forbidden Zone and it's revealed that she's in fact like a sort of slightly skeezy android com- companion in inverted commas. And he's right. like, oh no, now I'm going to have to buy another one. And it took me long enough to save up for that one. So you know he's got no money. He's got no money, a crap ship. His only personal relationship is with a machine. And he's got to go and he's take, he, he's going to get a load of money for rescuing these three girls. So it's got that noir hard world. He doesn't care. He's yeah. not a hero. He's doing it because he's going to get paid. So he goes through some quarries and they've got these like, um, amazing sort of motorbikes with carapaces that, and people in leather on them that attack him. And it, you know, it's basically got that kind of Mad Max vibe. He bumps into, uh, 
uh, Ernie Hudson, who's playing an old war buddy of his in a large tank. And he also picks up along the way a waif and stray played by Molly Ringwald, whose family were killed by Overdog. She's been living by herself. She thinks she's street smart. He's really street smart. They have an adversarial but mutually um, sort of affectionate, sort of a very much a father and daughter relationship evolves between the two of them. And that is one of the most fascinating things. Molly Ringwald is not, uh, uh, you know, it's not a, they have a chemistry, but it's not a sexual chemistry. He looks after her. She comes to rely on him to get them through, which is something you don't see in other movies. And so they travel, they go to the arena, he fights, he gets back the princesses. In fact, the plot is one of the least interesting things about the movie. It's a movie that's all about uh, things that happen between people and, you know, in a science fiction-y setting. And then there's some good action set pieces and, you know, people actually have an emotional journey. Um, It has a kind of snake, the, the character of Space Hunter, Wolf, has the a sort of a snake pliskiness about him. What I always thought was there was a great pilot for a television show that never existed. Um, yeah. And it was, in, it was made to be in 3D because 3D was a thing, a fad at the time, and thus has largely been forgotten. It's not really a, a, a 3D-ish movie. It's a movie that's about the characters. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a good movie. I like it. Obviously, as I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking at all this stuff, I'm quite excited about it. I, I, it seems vaguely familiar, but I, I, I can remember I can remember some of these things, but I don't think I, I don't think I've actually seen it. I need to track this down. Uh, they used to broadcast it a lot on late night television in the nineties, late eighties, yeah. and the, the throughout the nineties. I think it was a film my dad brought over from Australia. I was like, here, watch this, you'll like this. And it sort of goes in with a group of films like Moon 44 and, and, and wasn't, what's the, the um, guy, uh, what's more the guy crash lands on a planet with an alien and, and they're at war with each other. And, oh, Enemy Mine. Uh, enemy enemy mine. mine. I think the problem is it has a terrible title. That's the problem. Oh, it it's just an awful, seems, bearing in mind. It just what's... immediately puts me off. Yeah, bearing in mind the looks... content of the movie the title is completely wrong because it's not an, you know, it, you know, if it had a title like escape from New York or something like that, that was, you know, a bit more uh, lurid or garish as opposed to trying to be all Robbie rocket pants. I think it would have got yeah. further. I think if it hadn't been in 3d, it would have got a lot further. Um, yeah, it just, it was completely mishandled and, and thus has been forgotten. Also, it's, it's Space Hunter. It's such a meaningless name. Like, I hunt yes. space. I think of a spaceship. <laughs> Look, there's space. Box it up quick, everybody. Good, it was it? Space Hunter, we'll take your stuff and put it in a garage. It's a lot <laughs> name, you know? It's, yeah, so, yeah, definitely something that, as, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm honoured to be able to point you in the direction of watching it. Um, at your leisure. Yeah, but it looks fun. It looks fun. I, I, I kind of, yeah, I think I'm going to enjoy this. Um, so, yeah, so yeah. Then we've, got, then we've got Space Hunter. Um, and, and, of course, uh, War Games is the, I think that, I'm just, uh, yes. I'm not sure that we've, I'm just, oh, yeah, War Games and Blue Thunder came out this year. Um, whispers of, you know, Technofear was going to become a thing. And these were the first films, I yeah. would say, that dealt with that Technofear in anything approaching a sort of realistic way. I mean, obviously well, there is fantasy the, elements. Just the, the, the thing about war games, it's actually quite, for the time, it's very authentic in how computers work 
about you know talking over you know, communicating over the phone and things like that. We're yeah. discussing What's that. What's hilarious and, about and, it is that I think at the time, as I you know, is that people were like. Sorry, you can put your phone in a little thing and then it'll talk to a computer that's in the next state. <laughs> As if, science fiction. <laughs> What's this thing on the internet? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's just, yeah, yeah, but it's like you're saying, apart from the fact there is a sentient computer involved in this, uh, aside from that, it's like, it's, it's reasonably believable. You know, it was a strategy program at a programmer's back door, which the government didn't know about when they installed it to control their missiles. Uh, and this kid believably hacks his way into it without realising what he's doing. And, well, it is, and it's purely triggering what he thinks is just a game. But the machine starts interpreting, you know... It, it's, it's definitely believable in retrospect. I think at the time, and for quite a long while after, you know, the government wouldn't just, you know, leave something like that open. But as time has gone on, you go, no. Because pe- the fact is, we live in a world where computers were invented you know, in the 40s. They became more widespread in the early 80s. But the fact is that most people on Earth, to this day, do not really understand computers. And therefore, of course, in 1981-2, the government had, had more holes in their security than a Swiss cheese. Because it's it, it just ridiculous. Because it's that's how they, they didn't know what they were doing. It's quite interesting that, that there's no real bad guys in the war games. The, the bad guy is the fact that we have nuclear... We have and you go up if there's anything. Yeah, the, only the machine way... is not that. The machine does not want to overthrow humanity. No. The machine does not want to be in charge. The machine wants to play the game and win. Well, the machine's programming is to, yes, is to win that, yeah, to solve the algorithm. And then at the end, it comes to the conclusion, you know, it comes to the conclusion of mutually assured destruction. It says, yes. you can't, this is a game you cannot win. It's the yes. ultimate zero sum game. It's, it's, it's a strange game. The only way to play, the only way to win is not to play. Yes. Um, which is, it? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, and, and it, it exists. The thing is, as time goes by, I think it's a bit like Sue's reaction to um, network. As pe- you know, as new generations emerge, they'll watch war go- games and go, there is no drama in this film. These people are just talking about things I've grown up knowing. And that's, yes. that's kind of the weird thing. It's like, at the time, you know, people didn't believe it. Now people believe it so much it's become banal. It's, yeah. Oh. To, to, uh, to my observation about war games, having rewatched it with, like about two years ago, the mathic Broderick character is being chased by uh, I've got a name now. The other character, uh, he's very. She is really trying to get this guy's interest. She's going around. She's finding out where his hobbies are, getting interested in computers as well. She really wants to get this guy. She even initiates the kiss uh, in the last half of the movie. He is totally not doing this at all. He, he's he, She's coming around and he's totally nonplussed about it. Like, oh, come in, friend. It, it, it's it's strange how there's this, this computer nerd. And he's got this rather gorgeous, sporty <laughs> lady come around when he's in his class who's clearly interested in him for some reason. And he seems to be totally oblivious about it. Is that an unusual thing, that someone should be oblivious? No, but I think that it's it's a hangover from the fact that people, the actors, are older than the characters that they are playing. Also, they are movie stars. And it's this idea that in reality, this guy's like three years younger, and in reality, neither of them are possibly as good-looking as they're supposed, you know, as they're portrayed on the screen by Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy, 
and therefore he's just a really obsessed with computers and she's like this girl he knows. And they do this a time and time again in 80s movies. You know, there's even a movie about that, the one, the John Hughes one, um, with Mary Elizabeth Masterson, where the guy, he, you know, she's his best friend and she helps him, despite the fact that he's, she's in love with him, get this girl. And, you know, it's, just, yeah, it's something that got played out in the 80s, this idea that a guy could spend every waking moment with some girl and not realize, you know, Teen Wolf did it. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's just that, you know, you can understand him being obsessed with computers, but he actually has a girl willing to come round to his house and go into his bedroom. And he's still obsessed with computers. My God, man. But no, well, I think to be... I mean, I don't know, but I think it was a time when people acknowledged that there are all sorts of people in, in, in the world. And I had... I knew a guy when I was uh, in the... You know, about that age, you know, 14, 15. He was well into cars. He was really, in, like, he had a model of every car and he had them in his room on shelves, arranged via maker and year. And, you know, he was that, obs- he knew everything about makes and models of cars. It didn't have to be sports cars. It could be any car. And honestly, if a woman had come on to him, he wouldn't have known what to do. He would have just thought it was weird because he was that into cars. And mm. movies don't portray those people. They don't portray something, and, and, you know, this is an attempt to do that, and, and particularly not anymore. Now everybody's got to be looking out for a relationship any, everywhere they go. And I think that in reality, people don't sometimes. They're not. They've got another interest. So I, see, I, I, I don't mean it's so much the criticism. I listen to me, it's how blinkered he was. And when he gets into trouble later in the movie, he rings her up, and she gets on the coach and goes out to see him and gets some money for him to go travel somewhere. It's like, just like, whoa, dude, you are like blind. Just saying. Just yeah, really well, saying. you know. Well, anyway, are, I think people are in real life as it's well. It's believable. I think I agree with Leo. It's believable. There are people like that. I know people like that. And people who do all sorts of things. And, and you know, I mean, I think what people say when they say, well, did you not realise that person X, male or female, was following you around or was spending all this money, was doing all this and and it is you know when when it's a it's a man following a woman around when the woman turns around and says well I thought that's just what he wanted to do there you know you're like really did you but you believe it but if it's the other way around where a man goes I just thought that's what she wanted to do again yeah I mean it's, it's that thing so yeah I mean I, I think that movies could probably do with a bit more of that because I'm tired of seeing movies about young people in which there's always a girl who has to choose between two equally handsome but slightly different, one of whom's dark and dangerous, but the other one's, you know, and just, oh, stop, stop now. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. So, just... films where women are not the object of the pursuit. Well, no, they're not no, being chased. The thing. These days, women are not the object of the pursuit. What they have to do with a woman in the central role these days who's a teenager is uh, she, one man is like this kind of handsome and fantastic, and this guy is a different kind of handsome and fantastic. Which way will she go? You know, no, I just really. So, yeah, uh, I think that's probably a good, a good one to us to close out the, the discussion because we've, we've kind of veered well, off. I've so, got a thesis where I recommend people go. Yes, One such yes. place could be our Facebook page. Yes, which is, which is a 
Community Hub. Yes, you can obviously find us on Facebook, and that's Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as numbers, so that's 80s. Please go there. Please like, please comment. We put up our podcasts there. We put comments and links to news stories we find interesting. We have discussions occasionally as well. Um, but if it's the podcast you're interested in, you probably want to go to our Podomatic site, and that's 80s Kids as in letters. So that's E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S Kids dot Podomatic.com. Please go there and subscribe via the podcast aggregator of your choice or download it directly to your computer for dark reasons of your own. You can also comment there as well. Most of our podcasts, I think some of our early ones have dropped off into the Leo's archive by now. Um, but yes, we love feedback. Please come join us, talk to us, insult us, say we were all wrong because we, we honestly love feedback. You can agree with us as well, by the way. We were happy to receive those too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. uh, but Leo, you also found elsewhere on the internet, I believe. Well, as you said, pointed out, I've archived older shows that we no longer have room to store on our continual rolling subscription page or at leostableford.blogspot.com. Um, if you scroll down the podcast, if you, I've got a tag, podcast. If you click that, you get all the entries of the podcast in. They link to the ones that are currently up on Podomatic and the older ones, I've put them in the internet archive. So they're saved for posterity. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'm not sure. But yeah, that's that's where they are. Um, I'm also doing a fairy tale serial this year, um, which is at bridgetowntales.blogspot.co.uk. We're moving into the last part of that uh, effort now. So uh, yeah, is it, there's going to be an exciting conclusion coming up to that. I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, one of, I've noticed in my travels across all of the different uh, ways that you can consume our show... Probably, yeah, Facebook is a good place to go, I would say, for talking to us and having us chat back, because that's what Facebook is for. I mean, you know, that's what Facebook is is built for, whereas obviously the subscription page is a bit more ropey in that respect. The buttons don't work as well. It's all a bit sticky. And so probably the best thing to do is like us on Facebook, talk to us on Facebook, subscribe on Podomatic, and get old episodes from my side. It's all very confusing. If you're too confused by that, maybe you'd like to look at some nice drawings. Where might they be able to find them, Justin? <laughs> That's a very nice thing, Wade. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got a Deviant art page under my name, Justin Wyatt. Uh, so there's, there's the, the, some of the work I've been doing for Leo on, on the, uh, on the Fairytale website, the Bridgetown House. Um, and uh, and my own stuff as well. That's me. Um, and that pretty much brings 1983 to a, to a close. Um, I, I mean, my abiding impression of, of the whole thing is that it was a year of, of disappointments, and those things that are <laughs> l- are liked still or held in regard are done so with a kind of like, well, it wasn't as bad as it could have been kind of way, um, with the exception of Space Hunter, which is, of course, one of the best movies ever made. Um, in 1983. Uh, <laughs> so, and, set the bar real low there. Until the better than Superman three, you heard it here first. Until until we get to 1984, which I assure you will be not such an easy ride. We won't be able to dwell on things and pick them apart because there's so much to do. So until then, and of course more 80s TV, more news upcoming. Uh, we're going to have to go and take a rest. So I'm going to say. Goodbye. Um, farewell, and I about a nice game of chess. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy the sunshine, which is an abundance here in sunny Grey. So I will, uh, I will see you.
Until the next time.